On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all-music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Steve Bergsman, who has written a fascinating biography on bluesman Screaming Jay Hawkins entitled I Put a Spell on You, The Bizarre Life of Screaming Jay Hawkins. Welcome, Steve. Glad to be here. So congratulations on your book. And I have to say that bizarre in the title would certainly be one word to describe him and the book. And I'm curious what led you to do this book. Um, You know, he's an iconic, but perhaps little known musician. And you wrote, he could be charming, but he burned a path through agents, venues, promoters, and friends. Was it just the craziness that set you down that path? This was actually an accident. I wrote a book about Johnny Ace, who, uh, infamously offed himself, and the rumor is he was playing Russian roulette and, uh, and lost. There was a, a fellow, Mike Armando, who was connected to me on Facebook, and he was playing recently with a guy named Johnny Ace, and, and we got him confused. You know, as we got it all straightened out, Mike said, you know, you should write a book about Screaming Jay Hawkins and I can help you on that because I was in his band in the 1970s. Now, I was working on another book, and I wasn't so very interested in Screaming Jay Hawkins. But uh, Mike persisted. I, I got around to looking at Screaming Jay, and I, I realized, well, this is an extraordinary tale. Wrote the book, and then Mike created a sort of a cover band, The Resurrection of Screaming Jay Hawkins. But it's not really a cover band because he was in Screaming Jay's band back in the 70s. They premiered at a place in Philadelphia that was an old funeral home and then became sort of a, a weird soundstage. And he asked me to come down. I said, sure. So I came down and I talked about Screaming Jay and, and the resurrection of Screaming Jay Hawkins band got on the stage. And they do an amazing Screaming Jay uh, act including the whole coffin bit. So that's how I got involved and still involved with them. That's cool. That's a, it's an amazing act is a one way also to describe Screaming Jay's life. And he had a quote in your book, and I think it comes up a couple of times. And he said, I wish I could be who I was before I was me. No, I, I really don't understand that because <laughs> he didn't like who he was before he was me. He only liked who he was when he became a star. Anything before that, especially his early childhood, he didn't like at all. Well, you know, his life story was, you know, full of alternative realities. Going back to his mother, which uh, that's a very interesting mystery, which you, I don't know if you solved it, but tell us that story. So Screamin' Jay was put up to foster care, I believe it was. But his mother had a number of children. She was impoverished. 
And the last one to come along was Screaming Jay, and she just couldn't handle one more child. So uh, she placed Screaming Jay in, in foster care, and who was adopted by a woman who rented uh, rooms. And uh, the mother knew this woman and would sometimes visit Screaming Jay in the foster care home. And, and Screaming Jay grew up in this home, but he resented the fact that his mother gave him up for foster care, even though she probably did it for economic reasons, but still checked in with him during his life. And his foster care mother was very nice to him. And she was the one that uh, got him the music lessons, uh, piano lessons, which he took, uh, you know, for most of his elementary school years, he took piano lessons and he was a very good musician. But he always had this resentment towards his mother. And you're going to ask me about all his craziness and stories, but I think it all began here because he started creating this alternate reality about who he was, who his adopted family was, and how terrible his real mother was. So all that was brewing until he got to be an adult. I don't want to be political here, but he seemed to have had the same problem that a former president had. That was being able to tell the truth. And he often just told stories and not the truth. And there are a lot of those throughout your book. And and sometimes he sticks to the narrative pretty strictly. But, you know, some of those realities, his role in World War II, which leads into out of his childhood and, and into World War II and into you know, the Pacific or um, prisoner of war camps. And he told that one a lot. He tells the story of being a Golden Gloves champion after the war. Were either of those true? All these stories have a basis in reality. So he, he was in the service. And I have to give credit to a writer who's passed away now. His name was Nick Tosh, who caught up with Screaming Jay uh, 30 years before me. And he was the one that really got uh, Screaming Jay to admit that, okay, he was in the band in, in the service. And the stories would get confused because he'd say, I'm in World War II, but he, he'd talk about the Koreans or he's in the Korean War. He's talk about the Japanese and all these crazy heroic things he did. And the only basis of reality there was that he was in the service. And all the stories evolved over the years. He could never drop this story. Even in his final years, he was still telling a version of this story. The same thing with his boxing. I think he did uh, do some boxing in the service, but then that became another story of Golden Gloves champion. And I really had to track this down. And, and somehow I got lucky and I was able to find, you know, all the Golden Gloves categories and, and the years. And of course, there's no Screaming Jay Hawkins in it. So these things had basis in reality, but these were stories that he could not drop and they would evolve and evolve over the years. And he would tell these stories for decades. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. 
I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, uh, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with Steve Bergsman. He's the author of I Put a Spell on You, The Bizarre Life of Screaming Jay Hawkins. You know, with all these stories going on, there's a lot of different styles in music at that time when Jay came along. And you mentioned it before. He, he was quite the multi-instrument uh, musician. Yeah, so, he, he, you know, he got uh, uh, lessons for many years on the piano, and he was very good. And so he had a background in classical when he got out of the service, he was playing the clubs in Cleveland. And Cleveland had its version of Harlem, a neighborhood for, for African-Americans who lived there. And they had their own shops and their own clubs. And uh, these clubs were so good and attracted such great musicians, jazz and R&B. The whites from other areas of Cleveland would go there, just like the whites in New York would go to Harlem to see these clubs. That's where he got his start. And he was so musically inclined that he could play most any instrument, whether it was a horn, 
or guitar and and um and he was shifting his acts in later years either singing playing the piano or playing guitars but he was he was a very good musician i'm guessing that screaming jay doesn't fly as a classical pianist name but one of the stories that i really loved that he told all the time was how he got his nickname, which was apparently from a very drunk woman in a crowd at one of his 1950s shows. Is that right? This happened in a nightclub in Nitro, West Virginia. (laughs) Now, this is in the early 50s, and he's still in the service. So he's probably home on leave. And don't forget, this is before the interstate, the advent of the interstate. So to get, I don't know, it was 250 miles or 300 miles from Cleveland to Nitro, West Virginia, would have taken six hours on local roads. And so he would have to drive to Nitro, West Virginia, whatever was in Nitro, West Virginia, to a club and then drive back and then probably have to report to duty again. So I always wondered about this story. Of course, it's a J story, so maybe there's a basis of reality in it. Well, you know, it's like uh, his greatest song that everybody knows, and it is a classic in rock and roll, and, and that is I Put a Spell on You. And there's different thoughts on that piece as well. That song would change his life for a little while, but it was interesting how that all came about and who was involved in that. Can you talk a little about that? I know, for instance, that Alan Freed was involved a bit. Screaming Jake got out of the service, went back to Cleveland, and uh, Alan Freed the very well-known DJ who is credited with the term rock and roll, even though he didn't create that term, but he he certainly credited with publicizing it. So this is in the early 1950s and and Alan Freed is working his way up. He's a a very dynamic disc jock and he lands in Cleveland. And one of the local record store owners said, you know, you're not going to believe this, but we're getting Uh, a lot of whites in here buying these R&B records. You should do a show on R&B. And Alan Freed thought about it and and created the Moondog show, which played at night in Cleveland. And it proved very, very popular. Cleveland had one of those super antennas. This was before FM, it was only AM. Mm -hmm. So uh, these super antennas on a good night, you can hear probably all over the Northeast and people as far as away as New York or Pennsylvania, uh, probably into the South on a good night can hear that Cleveland station. Alan Freed can at least be credited with uh, creating the first rock and roll concert. And that rock and roll concert in the early 50s, and it was the Moondoa concert, it wasn't just one musician, it was a group of musicians that played and uh, one of the headliners was a guy named Tiny Grimes. But anyway, this concert, the seating was for maybe 4,000, but 20,000 teens showed up that mm-hmm. night. Wow. The Cleveland police declared it a riot and shut it down. And, and I think it was through Alan Freed that Screamer Jay Hawkins met Tiny Grimes. And, and Tiny Grimes was a pretty good name at that time. And when Tiny Grimes left to go back to New York, Screaming Jay went with him. He was married, had three kids, walked away from that uh, and became the limousine driver and extra musician for Tiny Grimes. Now, Tiny Grimes had this crazy act called the Rockin' Highlanders. 
So it was like four or five black dudes all dressed up in Scottish garb, you know, with Thames and and uh, the this you know those plaid Scottish skirts, and uh, and they'd sing, uh, you know, you take the high road, I'll take the low road, in in like modern jazz blues format, and it was a crazy, very ribald act. Screaming Jay became part of this, and he got to see how crazy these acts could be. And they were very popular. The, the Rock and Highlanders were very popular and, and nobody took offense at, at, at this. And they thought it was a great joke. So that's where I think uh, Screaming Jay sort of got the idea for a little craziness in the act. So he, he's making a name, he's getting, you know, you leave Sonny Grimes, he goes with other musicians who were popular at the time, including for a brief moment, Fats Domino. And it's time for him to record, and he records on a small local label, and he records uh, his own songs. And one of those songs is a ballad, and that ballad is I Put a Spell on You. He gets a, a better contract with a, a bigger record company, whether it was him or, or the director of the record company who's directing the recording, comes up with the idea that they re should redo Screaming Jay Hawkins tune, I put a spell on you, but not as a ballad, but as R&B. But anyway, he knew a lot of musicians by this time. When he went into the recording studio to record, I put a spell on you. This was all first class musicians. He had great backup, including the premier session guitarist at the time, Mickey Baker. And if you wanted to uh, do some R&B recording, you got Mickey Baker and Mickey Baker was in on this. But anyway, uh, it, it, the recording starts off badly and um, uh, the producer said, let's take a break. And he brings in, you know, lots of wine or lots of booze and, you know, fried chicken and they're all partying and drinking. But anyway, by the time they get back to the stage, they could barely stand and they they cut loose on uh, I Put a Spell on You and Screaming Jay is eight sheets to the wind. He's singing this song and he's grunting and moaning. And when it's all said and done, it ends up to be a classic. But it was so scary and people were afraid of screaming Jay Hawkins and it never really got full play on the radio. But it became sort of a, 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 a great, great, rec, great hit record that year anyway, because of the uh, you know, word got out that there's this really cool song, I Put a Spell on You. And that's, and that's where we were. So is that Eight Sheets to the Wind version? Is that the one we all know? That's the one we all know. And according to all the stories, all the stories, they were drunk and they were out of their minds. <laughs> and it's just a perfect, crazy recording. What can you do? Right. One time live and there it is. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. 
prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. We're speaking with Steve Bergsman. He's the author of I Put a Spell on You, The Bizarre Life of Screaming Jay Hawkins. It's interesting. You mentioned this, but, you know, the teenagers are almost right. You talk about how huge that song was. Uh, and they took to Jay in a big way, probably for a lot of reasons here in time. Uh, the parents in the radio definitely did not. And it had a lot to do with the vocal stylings, the grunting and groaning that you mentioned. Is that right? Well, the, the, so the the zeitgeist of the time, so this was the the advent of really rock and roll. And the uh, the parents generally were they were kind of afraid of this music. So whether it was Chuck Berry or Elvis Presley or uh, Little Richard, but definitely even further out there was uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins. So the teenagers were really flocking to this kind of music and, and parents were scared and record companies were a little nervous because they didn't know how this was going to go. There was already that, you know, the Moondog riot in Cleveland and there were subsequent tales of concerts in Boston that the police had to shut down because of teens. So really the, the teens were looking for this music. They wanted this kind of music and a lot of parents just didn't know how to handle it. So there was a conflict here. You know, what about his theatrical show and showmanship? I mean, the coffin prop would become legendary and be part of that opening all the time. I think in your book, it was Alan Freed's idea and Screaming Jay had, you know, quite the adverse reaction about a black man going into a coffin, right? But by this time, Alan Freed, he was now in New York City and he was a, a, a big dog in radio. He was probably the most famous disc jockey in the country at the time. And he started to do these shows. It's not like a rock concert today where, you know, it's one act and maybe a supporting act. In those days, you, you know, he'd get 10, 15 acts on a show. The show would go almost all afternoon and then they do it all over again, or maybe three times that day. And each act got to do one, two or three songs at the most. So, you know, they'd come on, do their song. Next guy come in, do their song. And from the start, Alan Freed put uh, Screaming Jay on his very first show. And Alan Freed was a showman and he realized there was this crazy record. And if, if Screaming Jay could sort of play up the, the nuttiness uh, or the weirdness or the shockiness of the song, you know, this could be, could be something interesting. And it was his idea to have the coffin in. And he knew he was going to talk Screaming Jay into it because he had the coffin there, ready. <laughs> And he just didn't tell Screaming Jay till the last minute. And it took a bit of bribery for Screaming Jay to come around to the fact that he was going to get out of a coffin. You know, you know, I don't know how much uh, Alan Freed gave him, maybe $300. But, you know, by the time Screaming Jay told this story for the hundredth time, he was getting thousands of dollars. <laughs> so it was well worth it for Screaming Jay to do this funny thing. The song would open up, he'd come out of the coffin, and he'd go into his old... Ah, put a spell on you, moaning and groaning and, and things like that. Screamer Jay was very theatrically inclined anyway, even if he wasn't doing the coffin bit. 
and they always asked for the coffin. It got a little unnerving for him. You know, he had this whole act. He would dress up. He, you know, had his, he had this cane with a skull on top. And uh, so, you know, in later years, he would have smoke bombs. And so he, he, he really created that whole rock and roll theater. You know, this got adopted by many, many acts later on, whether it's Kiss or Alice Cooper, but they really all owe big debt to Screamin' Jay, who was the first to create rock and roll theater. Along with his friend Henry, who I believe was the skull's name. Is that right? That's right. He always had the Henry. And sometimes Henry would come out, he'd come out with Henry smoking a cigarette. <laughs> Yeah, that that is way ahead of his time. As I might put out the quote that I think he used originally, where he's, if, if you're a black man and you go in a coffin, you don't come out. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. But, you know, a little, for, for a few dollars more, right? he's adjusted. Well, as, as we'll learn, it was always about money and being paid and eventually about being at the top of the list. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with Steve Bergsman. He's the author of I Put a Spell on You, The Bizarre Life of Screaming Jay Hawkins. So to that end with the coffin story, which is probably second best known story only to I Put a Spell on You, um, can you tell the story of the drifters and the latch, which also leads into kind of Golden Gloves material, because that is an amazing story. So uh, there are always stories of Screaming Jay beating up people. And Screaming Jay was a big dude. He's over six feet tall, and uh, he was scary. Uh, some of the other performers were afraid of him. And, and of course, in later years, he got in conflict with just about everybody. But uh, there was a time he was touring with the Drifters, and the story was always that the Drifters would help him by taking out the coffin to the stage, and he, was, he would be in it. Uh, one time the, the, the latch locked and he was stuck in the coffin and the drifters are off, off stage. And anyway, Charlie Thomas of the drifters who just died uh, just in the past few weeks, the last of mm. the original drifters told me this story. The, the story that got down past through legends is that Screaming Joe was so pissed off that he went after the drifters and beat them all up. But that wasn't true. The, it was an accident. They, they brought the coffin on stage and the latch just fell together. And Screaming Jay, panicking, trying to get out of his coffin, finally knocked it off and the door opened up and uh, Screaming Jay crawled out. But the real story was that Benny King and Charlie Thomas, they said, oh, oh, we're in trouble. Screaming Jay is going to be pissed about this, <laughs> but that latch locked. And they actually absented themselves from the theater for about an hour, hoping he would calm down. And then they came, they came back and uh, it was all set, settled amicably as they explained it was an accident and they didn't do it on purpose. But that latch incident would happen at other times as well. So that latch was not always safe for Screaming Jay. <laughs> so he didn't really beat up the drifters. That's good. Let's talk a bit about his personal life. You know, we, we mentioned how, how he grew up. Uh, an interesting trait is he had a habit of marrying women throughout his life. However, divorcing wasn't part of the process. Yeah, he married early. He had a first wife, uh, married very young. He was in the service. They had three children together. And as mentioned, he, he pretty much 
just walked away for, from that marriage. Then he would, uh, you'd see announcements in the black press that he was getting engaged. So you'd see one or two stories about uh, Screamin' Jay getting engaged, although he was still married. Uh, one of those women, when he got a gig in Hawaii, he went to Hawaii uh, with that woman and met another woman in Hawaii who he did marry, even though he never divorced from his first wife. So this is his second wife, Ginny. And this was his longest marriage. This was about 20 years. He, he remained married to Ginny. And it was probably about 15 years into that marriage when he finally divorced his first wife. Then Ginny, she got her divorce, which she had to push through entirely because uh, Screaming Jay had no part of it. He eventually had six wives. So he had six wives. And there was a time when it was believed he had something like 80 children uh, in, in the world. And there was actually a, a, another documentary in England covering this Screaming Jay and his 80 children. And then the numbers kind of got worked down to 50 children of mm. this children. And I, and I looked at it and none of it made any sense. And I'm sure Screaming Jay played around a lot. He, he was married to Ginny for about 20 years. And she knew that if she ever left him alone, he would be screwing somebody else. So whenever possible, she traveled with Screaming Jay. And actually, Screaming Jay would, would prefer that she traveled with him because his wives always took care of him. He, you know, he took care of his books, got him his equipment. Sometimes they helped him on stage. You really were another roadie when you were his <laughs> wife. So A, if he, he preferred to travel with his wife, but if he didn't travel with wife for some reason, then he probably screwed around. I remember one of his wives also did his uh, pyrotechnics, which is interesting and just shows that, uh, you know, everybody had to, to help in. And, and, you know, that seems to be something that he wanted from everyone, from the people who put on the shows to the labels. You know, a lot of it was about everybody helping him and uh, his legacy based on this one hit, really. And it cost him a, a lot of friendships in the business, didn't it? I mean, they all tried to stick with him, but eventually they'd leave. Well, here's the, here's the weird thing about uh, Screaming Jay's personality. You would think if you did something for him, if you did a good thing, if you put him in a movie, if you married him, then all the nonsense would stop. The lies would stop and he would actually be more truthful to you. But he couldn't help himself. The more you did for him, the worse, in a sense, he treated you. Hmm. So... Uh, if you did him a favor, you still got the lie. You might have even gotten a bigger lie. Plus, you know, for a lot of years, he carried this tremendous amount of anger with him because he never felt he got dealt squarely in. And he probably didn't because uh, most black acts were taken advantage of. But especially, especially in those early, early years, not just by the producers, but by the promoters who would steal the money and then you'd end up with nothing. He carried a lot of anger with him all those years. He had a, a much longer career than I would have guessed. And he had some supporters much further along that were, you know, very hip uh, to this day even. And uh, they really pitched in. I know indie film director Jim Jarmusch really helped him out. There were dedicated Scream J fans out there, mostly because of 
I put a spell on you. But, you know, those people who were dedicated fans liked a lot of his other music. And he wrote much of his music. And I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly a big fan of, some, of his other music, but there are some songs that are pretty good out there. And uh, Jim Jarmusch was one of those people. And he and Jim Jarmusch back in the 80s and 90s, he was a well-known independent film producer. And, and his first movie, the whole movie was a riff on I Put a Spell on You. And then he did another movie about Memphis and he put Screamin' Jay in his, in his, um, his film. And, and it's weird, in that film, Screamin' Jay was uh, worked the front desk of a hotel and uh, an Asian couple walks in. I think it's a Japanese couple. And, and Screaming Jay goes through the same BS. He tells Jim Jarmusch, you know, I don't know if I can work with uh, this Japanese couple because of, you know, my World War II experiences <laughs> negating the fact that he was married to an Asian woman, a Filipino, for, for 20 years. So, you know, he, even Jim, though Jim Jarmusch is helping him, he, he, he has to go through his same nonsense. Uh, I don't know if I can work with them. They're Japanese. I got this history. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. So even Jim Jarmusch, who, who loved the guy, got the business. I, I do remember that. In the first one, it was really because he only used that song, Jim Jarmusch used, I Put a Spell on You. And it later came out that, you know, the royalties he paid didn't get down to Jay. And so he put him in the movie to help pay back. It was hard to get the exact story on who had ownership of I Put a Spell on You. Uh, I don't believe by that time Screamin' Jay had ownership of the song. First of all, uh, if you go back to when the song came out, it was hard for R&B singers to keep their ownership of those songs. It usually ended up in the hands of the publisher. But even, let's say he did keep it for a while. At some point, I, I believe he, he relinquished the ownership so, and I think that's what happened with the Jim Jarmusch. And Jim Jarmusch had to go elsewhere to get the rights to use that song uh, in, in that movie. Well, speaking of fans, and he certainly had them, but uh, Keith Richards appears on an album cut with him. And the producer told Keith after the, uh, after the recording session that he didn't have enough money to pay Keith. And as typical with Keith, his response was so beautiful. Can you tell that? Basically said, no, that's okay. Working with, with, with Screamin' Jay was an honor. So that was my pay. Keith Richards was, was a Screamin' Jay fan. Right. And uh, Screamin' Jay uh, toured or opened for the uh, Rolling Stones. But I don't think that lasted very long either because <laughs> Screamin' Jay was not an easy personality, especially in those days we're talking about angry screaming Jay for most of the time. <laughs> yeah. And I think he's uh, quote included there that it was part of his educational uh, donation uh, to, to screaming Jay, which is very Keith. Um, well, listen, we're speaking with Steve Bergsman who wrote, I put a spell on you, the bizarre life of screaming Jay Hawkins. And I wanted to, to leave it with out of his mouth, um, which I thought was pretty interesting. And he had a pretty long life given the circumstances. I think he died in 2000. He had a lot of ups and downs. He has a very famous quote. It's on the back of your book that talked about him being born and dying. 
Could I get you to, to give that to our listeners? Yeah. He said, I came into this world black, naked, and ugly. And no matter how much I accumulate here, it's a short journey. I will go out of this world black, naked, and ugly. I don't think you can get it any better than that. <laughs> well, listen, Steve, thank you very much. Uh, your book is fantastic. It can be found at all bookstores. You sent me a note, and you've got a new book coming out. Do you want to tell our listeners about that real quick as well? Yeah, it's called Earth Angels. And if you might remember, there was a 1950s doo-wop song called Earth Angel. And it's about three R&B pioneers who died very young, controversial deaths. And the three singers are Jesse Belvin, Guitar Slim, and Johnny Ace. These stories are about who they were and their, their excellence and how they died uh, in these controversial ways. However, this is all pre-rock and roll. It's really a, a, a history lesson in what was happening in R&B before 1955-1956. For me, it was fascinating to write because I, I learned this whole history that I never knew before. For anybody sort of interested in how we got to rock and roll, uh, this is a good book. Well, I definitely want to check that out, and maybe we'll have you back to talk about that one. But thanks very much for joining us to speak about I Put a Spell on You. That is one song everyone knows, and uh, there's so many stories behind it, and they're all in your book, so I just definitely ask our listeners to check it out. Thanks, Steve. Steve, thank you very much. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com, and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. 
I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.